you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 16? <clears throat> In the bulletin, it gives an indication that over the next four weeks, we're going to take uh, a slight detour. <clears throat> We've been working our way through Joshua. We have completed that journey. And so the next book for us to do would be Judges. And at night time, uh, we're in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit. And so when we finish that, we're going to then probably head into a series on 2 Timothy. If I continue that path, then you're going to be in the Old Testament for the next 20 years. Not that that would be a bad thing. So I thought, I was just saying quickly this morning to Pastor David, we'll talk about it during the week, but we might reverse that. We might do Judges at night and 2 Timothy in the morning. But we'll just continue to work our way through some Bible material. So this morning and over the next, <clears throat> excuse me, a few weeks, we're going to also in the morning service do something on the Holy Spirit. This comes out of a request from some of members who came and asked me about, we never talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, what does the Bible teach about gifts? And what does the Bible teach about tongues? And so David's going to do that at night. I'm going to do other stuff in the morning. Uh, David will take some of what he's done at night and he'll also present that in the morning service. And I'll take some of what I do in the morning service and do that at night. Okay, so that's roughly the direction we're sort of going in. Does this sound keep going in and out? <clears throat> Can't do anything about that. I'm not sure if it's can either. Um, this one doesn't. Oh. That, that one? I'll just stand still. is God. He is a person. He is not simply a person. He is a divine person. He is fully God. Uh, he is equal to and yet distinct from the Father and the Son, the triune God. And he is essential to all of us as followers of the Lord Jesus. He is a person. He is a divine person. And he is essential to us as followers of the Lord Jesus. That's what I want to teach you this morning and then to make at the end four points of application, four implications of this. What does this mean for us? I apologise that I don't have the screen but there's a whole stack of Bible verses so I'm going to give you the outline. I'll mention some verses and if you want more detail then you can go and see Pastor Dave. Firstly, he is a person. The most common error I hear from Christians about the Holy Spirit is to call him an it. It. He is not an it. He is a him. He is a person. And so 
let me raise that awareness for you that when you talk about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that he is a person. Here are four reasons or four proofs, if you like, of what the Bible teaches us about him, in fact, being a person. He has the qualities of a person. Number one, he has self-awareness. <clears throat> he has the qualities, the attributes, the attributes that a person requires to, in fact, be a person by definition. He thinks, he feels, and he acts. Pretty basic, isn't it? But he thinks, he feels, he has a will, and he makes choices, and he acts. He thinks. Um, he has a mind, and he searches. In fact, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he searches out the very deep things of God, because he is God also implying that he knows all things. We'll come back to that. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 2, in fact, calls him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of knowledge and of counsel. He is a person who has intelligence. He thinks and he can think independently. He can analyse and evaluate. He feels. We'll come back to this, but there are many indications uh, that he is a, a person who is very gentle, and he can be easily grieved, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that he feels grief, particularly against some followers, when we sin. And then finally, he decides, he has a will, he chooses, he makes decisions. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, it talks about how the Holy Spirit says to a group of early church leaders, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, to the task for which I have appointed them. He selects, he chooses, he empowers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it's the Holy Spirit, in fact, who decides which spiritual gifts we get. We'll certainly come back to that because that's an axiomatic truth. You don't get to choose your gifts. They are given to you by the Spirit. He sovereignly apportions the gifts that each one of us has. So he is a person. He acts like a person. Personal actions are attributed to him. He guides, he convicts, he works. I think Pastor David will talk a little bit more about that tonight. He intercedes, he searches, he speaks, he loves. In fact, all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, are the attributes of the Lord Jesus and they are his that he is a person who is just like the Lord Jesus. In fact, when Jesus says in this passage that I am going away and when I go away, I will send the helper, the comforter, the counsellor to you. He, in another passage in John, talks about how he is another counsellor, another comforter. And the word another means I'm going to send you a helper, counsellor or a comforter who is just like me. That's literally what If I had an ice cream and I was eating it <clears throat> and I dropped it and then I said, I want another one, in the Greek language I could say that two different ways. I could say, I want another one. In other words, I just want another one. I want a different one. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but I want another one. Or I could say, I want another one exactly like that one, Alon. And it's that word that the Holy Spirit, that this Lord Jesus uses when he says, I'm going to send you another comforter. He uses that second one. Another one just like me. Exactly the same as the Lord Jesus. He is a person. 
who thinks and prays and speaks and chooses and wills. He is a person also because personal pronouns are used of him in John chapter 14 and 16, the passage I read. Personal pronouns, he. The Lord Jesus wouldn't be talking about a power or an influence with a personal pronoun. And then finally, my fourth reason for why the Holy Spirit is a person is that he is often treated as if he is a person. Passive personal properties are ascribed to him. Uh, He is the recipient of things that people do against other people. He can be blasphemed. He can be lied to. He can be resisted, grieved, I've already mentioned. He can be quenched. He can be insulted. And in Acts 5, he can be tested, tempted. So for all of these reasons, and um, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not just a person. He is a divine person. He is fully God. And there are seven reasons. Number one, he's called God. If you've got a Bible, and Amelia might want to try and find these on the screen and flash them up if you don't. Acts chapter 5, this is probably the most common one, but I want to give you a couple of others. In Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter is challenging them, in verse 3 he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it didn't belong to you. And after it was sold, um, it was at your disposal to do with. And then he says, How is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? You didn't lie to us, but to God. How did you lie to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to us, but to God. It's not a direct reference, but it's certainly a direct implication of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, don't look that one up, but just to remind you, that our bodies are called the temple of spirit and our bodies are also called the temple of God. So again a direct allusion to or implication that the spirit of God is God. There's a much clearer reference, well I think clearer, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 where the spirit of God is called the living God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Paul says, and of course he is referring again to the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, if you like, God is above us. In the New Testament, in the coming of the Lord Jesus, he is God with us, Emmanuel. But as the Lord Jesus tells in John chapter 16, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, he is God in us. God above us, God with us, God in us. We are temples of God. And that has implications for the way we live our life. That's the first reason. He is called God. He is a divine person because the word God is used of him. Secondly, or maybe even just associated with that, he is called Yahweh by implication. That which Jehovah or Yahweh does in the Old Testament, it's the Lord who led, the Lord God who led Israel through the wilderness. In the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit who is attributed to that or through the prophet Isaiah. He is the one, the Holy Spirit led them. So if it's Yahweh who's leading them there and it's a spirit who's leading them there, then by implications he is one and the same. He's Yahweh. It's God who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. In the New Testament we are told it's the spirit who spoke through the prophets. God. He is equal to the Father and to the Son. Some people have an understanding of the Trinity which is hierarchical. The Father is the leader and is supreme. Then there is the Son. And then thirdly there is the Spirit 
depending on where you come from in your church tradition, he proceeds from the Son or he proceeds from the Father and the Son. But there is, I fear, a misunderstanding in many people's minds that the Spirit is somehow the third and most insignificant member of the Trinity. That's not correct. That's false thinking. It's incorrect theology. He is fully and equally God. Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Not three gods, there is one God. Yes. I can't explain it either. The Bible tells us that quite clearly. That's why in the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, can quite easily say, go into all the world, make disciples, baptise them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is equated with and associated with the Father and the Son. The benediction in 2 Corinthians 13 talks about how the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, again, associated with and treated as equal to. The New Testament is filled with these sorts of allusions and references. Just to give one, and it's all the way through. You can go to nearly every book in the New Testament, in fact, nearly every book in the New Testament, and you'll find some sort of allusion like this. Say nearly. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, does this same thing. It's almost just as an aside, but in the very mind of Peter, there is clear understanding of the triune God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, um, that this is from Peter and he's writing this letter to these believers who have been chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, to be obedient to the Lord Jesus and to be sprinkled with his blood. This allusion again to the true living God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Notice the order changes and sometimes it does, not often but sometimes it does. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is uh, the one who led the Lord Jesus. He led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the Holy Spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, Romans chapter 8 verse 11. The Lord Jesus himself says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit who empowered the Lord Jesus. Who else except a divine being could lead or influence or raise from the dead? The Lord Jesus himself, except a divine being, the Holy Spirit. The names that he has given in the New Testament, scattered all the way through them, remind us and teach us that he is divine. He is called the Holy Spirit. He's called an eternal spirit. He's called the spirit of glory, the spirit of life, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, the spirit of wisdom. All of these are divine titles, but they are used of him. He is a divine person. He has divine attributes. He knows all things. He is all present, Psalm 139, present everywhere, is omnipresent, and he is all powerful. He is the one who uh, at the incarnation, creates a body for the Lord Jesus and he is the one at the end who raises the Lord Jesus from the dead. He is involved in the actions of creation, hovering over creation, creating, Job 33 verse 4, creating life itself. He is involved in the incarnation, the Lord Jesus becoming human and he is involved, as I've said, at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus being brought back from the dead. He is the one who inspired the scriptures, he is the one who has brought us life. He's convicted us and regenerated us. He is the spirit who sanctifies us, helps us to become increasingly like Jesus. 
He is the one who gives us gifts. He is the one who calls us into ministry. He is the one who appoints elders over the church. He is the one who empowers us for witness. The Holy Spirit is a person, but the Holy Spirit is also a divine person. Thirdly, he is essential to us as followers of the Lord Jesus. We cannot live the Christian life without him, without his influence in us. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't be saved. John chapter 3, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Without the Holy Spirit, you won't have any assurance of your salvation because it's the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit who assists us in prayer. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us gifts for service. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us empowerment for witness. He is absolutely essential for us as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus. Well, they are the three truths that I want us to get. He is a person. He is a divine person. He is absolutely essential to us. Three other quick things, and then I want to make four applications. The Holy Spirit is God himself, resident within. Not to tyrannise, but to transform us passionate followers of Jesus. He perpetually points to Jesus. He never points to himself. The Father sends the Son into the world to die on the cross to redeem us. The Spirit raises him from life and it's the Spirit who then applies all of his teaching to us in returning glory and praise to the Father. There is a marvellous flow and interconnection. Three things. Firstly, he is a permanent resident. Unlike the Old Testament, as a resident Lord within. He never leaves us. David could pray in Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from us. That's the Old Testament. New Testament, the New Covenant. After the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and with Pentecost, the Spirit is now given to us permanently. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is permanently resident. Jesus says he is with you. He will be in you. We are the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he can withdraw his presence. He can withdraw a sense of his presence. He is with us. And yet sometimes we can feel distant from him, from God. He hasn't left us. The Bible indicates that he would not do that. Hebrews 13, Matthew 13. So he is a permanent resident. Secondly, <clears throat> he powerfully empowers us to follow the Lord Jesus. Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship with the living God. And the Bible, New Testament, talks about it as a walking in the Spirit, a walking with the Spirit as we follow the Lord Jesus. Often in a church we can make the mistake <clears throat> as followers of Jesus that we rely upon our own strength, our own mind, our own energy, our own worldly methods, that which we take from the business world we can bring into the church world. And while there are some parallels and some helpful things that we can pick up, to rely upon that is to undermine the very thing that the New Testament wants to create, the church of the Lord Jesus, the body empowered by him. The apostles demonstrate that for us when they said, it's not right for us to abandon <coughs> that which God's called us to in order to wait upon tables for the widows who are being neglected in the daily distribution. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
Our similar call is upon us as followers of the Lord Jesus to devote ourselves to prayer, relying upon him and his word, walking in obedience and learning more about him. He's a permanent resident. He powerfully empowers us to follow Jesus and he encourages us. He is the comforter. He is the helper. He prompts us. He whispers. He assures. He witnesses with our spirit that we are belonging to him. He is doing it perpetually because he wants us in a close relationship with Jesus. He encourages us. We need to listen to him. He became resident within us in order that he might become president, the Lord, so that he might fill us with a sense of his presence but also with his joy as we live under his rule. Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. There is to be a spiritual dimension to us as we follow the Lord Jesus. It's not just about being religious. It's not just about being moral or nice. It's about being passionate about following Jesus. He makes the difference. There is to be an observable, noticeable difference between us as Christians as we follow him and people who don't. You know as well as I do particularly in the West, sadly sometimes we fall short of that standard. And you may know non-Christians who are nicer than some of the Christians. Bit of a wake-up. We have the Spirit of God living within us as we follow the Lord Jesus. There is to be a transformation, the fruit of his Spirit coming out. Two people once were walking along and they had a third acquaintance with him they were talking about and this other particular person had become a Christian. Christian, walking with a non-Christian, talking about another Christian, another friend. These two in their conversation. The non-Christian says, what do you think led to the change in this person's life? Wonderful opportunity, wasn't it? And this person gives this wonderful illustration. Um, He says, when I grew up in Europe, When I was a little boy, we used to live in this particular part of Europe, this country, where there was this old castle. And I used to go as a young boy and just watch the castle, just admire it. He said, I could always tell what was going on inside the castle by the lights that were on. For instance, if there was just the family just living there by themselves, then there would be, you know, one light on or just very pale light going through the windows. But if there was a party on, if there were other guests that were present, then there would be more lights on. It was much brighter. It was very pretty. And he said that once there was a royal member who visited. And when the royal member was resident within, then every light in the the castle was on and the grounds were lit. It was just magnificent. He said by looking, you could tell that there was a royal member within. Now, that's not a bad illustration of parallel. He said, that's how I would explain the transformation in this person's life. That they have changed because there is now a divine or a a royal resident living within and their life is transformed by it. 
Now, I don't mean want to uh, make you feel guilty or anything else, but I do want to challenge you and myself that our lives need to reflect more, are to reflect more, are required to, more of his spirit living within. That's the first application. If he is resident, then it ought to be demonstrated. The Bible talks about being filled with the spirit. We'll come back and talk more about that. Being under his control, his lordship in every area of our life, lifting to those prompts and whispers when we get tempted to go off course and to do and or say things that are questionable, that are not right, that are clearly contrary to his word, then we need to listen to those prompts. Spirit within will be saying, don't do that. Cut it out. He will convict. He will guide. He will direct. We need to respond to his leadership in our life. Secondly, we need the Holy Spirit to be operating fully within us because if the Lord Jesus did, then how much more do we? In, John, in Luke chapter 4, it talks about how the Lord Jesus went away into the wilderness and was tempted by the evil one. And when he returned, he returned, it says, Luke 4 verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. If the Lord Jesus, himself God, in the flesh, needed the anointing and the empowering and the infilling the help of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we, frail humans? Luke 4 verse 18, the Lord Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me and he has sent me forth. Jesus ministered in the power of the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 18, it's quoting an Old Testament prophecy. It talks about how God says, I'll put my Spirit on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus. So we need the Spirit, just like the Lord Jesus did, if we are going to effectively follow and effectively serve him. The third thing I want to say to you this morning is, associated with that, is we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit, day by day, consciously, deliberately, walking in submission to him, aware of his promptings, following his word. <clears throat> when the Lord Jesus enters our life, if we have accepted him, if we've repented and believed, when he comes to set up his kingdom within, then he opposes another kingdom which is already resident there. We have two natures within. I came across this poem. It's very helpful. It says this. Two natures beat within my chest. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. Two natures beat within my chest. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. Very true. Galatians chapter 5. We have the Spirit of God within us and we have our own sinful nature wrestling against each other. The one we choose to feed, respond to, submit to, please, will be the one that dominates in our life. Brothers and sisters, we need to be choosing the Spirit of God. Finally, and perhaps most controversially, if the Spirit is a person, and if he's a divine person, and if he's essential for us as we follow the Lord Jesus, if he is resident within us in order that he might be president of us, if the Lord Jesus needed him, then we certainly need him, and if we are to walk with him, is it also required of us to pray to him? And depending on how you ask the question, 
is it okay that we pray to him? Then the answer to that is yes, because he is God. And we are invited, in fact commanded, to pray to God. So theologically, on the argument of the Trinity, it's quite acceptable to pray to God. Are we commanded to pray to the Spirit? No. Some people would say that there is no biblical example of anybody praying to the Spirit. I'm going to give you two verses that I invite you to write down, take away and read yourself, where I think there could be an allusion to or a hint of people praying to the Spirit. But most conservative evangelical theologians will certainly say there is no biblical example of anybody praying to the Spirit. And so we may, because he is God, but we are not obligated to because it's not commanded in Scripture. So in other words, you could live your Christian life and not pray to the Spirit and you will not be grieving him or sinning because the clear, it's not clearly revealed to us that we must. But because he is God, he is to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and with the Son. What are those two references? The first reference is Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Um, and if most conservative evangelical theologians say Bible commentators or whatever say that there is no biblical evidence of anybody praying to the Holy Spirit then there aren't going to be very clear references are there there's going to be something subtle time's gone so I'm just going to give them to you and you can stick pins in dolls later during the week this is the Lord Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus looks out and sees the whole crowd and he sees, has compassion for them. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. The Lord Jesus is saying to his disciples, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into the harvest. Question. Who is the Lord of the harvest? My answer. And I could be wrong. Don't quote me. But I think the Lord of the harvest is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who now appoints. He is the one who raises up. He is the one who sends forth. He is the Lord of the harvest. And that might be related to this one as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 is the only other closest illusion that I can come to otherwise I endorse what others have said there is certainly no very clear reference to the Holy Spirit being prayed to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5 the Apostle Paul writing a request for prayer finally brothers pray for us that the word of the Lord might spread and be glorified everywhere just as it has amongst you. Verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded. Number 5, verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord, who is the Lord when Paul says that? Well, I suggest to you he's referring to the Lord, the Holy Spirit. May the Holy Spirit direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now that's an interpretation. But it's Paul, not quite praying, but very close to it, suggesting, asking, 
May the Lord, the Holy Spirit, direct your hearts to the love of God. Well, outside of those two references, no, I can't find any other clear examples of people praying to the Holy Spirit. So can we? Yes, we can. Should we? If you feel led to. Must you? No. He is a person, he is a divine person, and he is essential for us as we follow the Lord Jesus. Let me lead you in prayer. Pray. Heavenly Father, may you continue to enlighten us by your word so that we might understand you, your Son, and your Spirit more fully. We ask you, Lord, to add this blessing to our life. May you apply truth to our hearts and make the Holy Spirit more real and more precious to us. Lord, Lord Jesus, May you send your spirit that he might fill us and empower us. And dear Holy Spirit, we ask, I ask, that you might have your way in each of our lives, not simply as resident, but as president. Fill us for the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Darrell.